0: Job 29. These three chapters come as a little bit of a bundle. 29, 30, and 31. And uh, this is Job's closing argument. I mentioned last week that he's done with his friends. Then we have this interlude on the wisdom of God. And now we get to his closing argument argument, and it's a three-part argument. The first, which is chapter 29, is the summary of his former life, the way things used to be. It's Job's reflection on the good old days, and not in a bad sense, not uh, he he's he's not looking through rose-colored glasses or or misremembering the past. It really was good. <laughs> it, was, it was he he was good and he got great and he felt a sense of God's presence and favor and closeness and that was the way things were. And then in chapter thirty, Job is going to deal with his present sorrow. The way that things are. Now, the suffering that he has experienced of late, uh, this, this hellish nightmare in which he's found himself since that horrible day, now probably some uh, months, if not years ago. And then in chapter 31, he will give his final rebuttal or dismissal to the argument that he deserves this, that this is just and so he, it is as though knowing the argument that his counselors, his friends made and having already dismissed it to them. He, he's now, as he's turned his attention toward God, wants to make sure that God's not buying that argument either. <laughs> that, that this idea that Job is hiding some sort of deep sin and therefore getting what he deserves this is not true. It's not reality. And so he's going to protest that argument just one more time, and then he's going to close. That's going to be the closing of his, of his case. So that's 29, 30, 31. I don't think we'll get through them all today, especially because I want to stop. I, I want to really slow down in 31 and take a couple rabbit trails there on some of the things that he talks about. It, that is the first part where I think Job goes too far. It's the first part of Job for me, and reasonable readers can disagree about when this happens. But for me, chapter 31 is where Job finally is wrong, uh, and perhaps sinfully wrong in what he says. And, and you, we'll see that a little bit in Elihu's first correction of Job. He's going to point back to what Job says in that chapter, so I think I'm on good footing there. What Job longs for is what he's already experienced. He, he's, not, he's not pining for a grass is greener world where it's not going to turn out to be all that he expects it to be. He is pining for the way things were. He looks at life before tragedy. And has plenty of acknowledgement for its imperfections. Remember, he was offering sacrifice for sin and was concerned that his children might be taking the things of God too lightly. Job, Job is not living in the new heavens and the new earth before this tragedy. But he is living in a way that feels connected to the favor of God. And now he's not. And he looks back at that. And in a way, he's not longing for glory. He's he's longing to get that back, to recapture what was. And so his mind lingers on those previous days. Good morning. You're fine. I leave it cracked too because it makes a noise. Uh, he's, He's longing for those better days of the past. And he really longs for it. It's not, it's not unimportant to him that it could be regained. It is everything, every fiber of his being, every moment of his day. He feels this sense of loss for what was. C.S. Lewis wrote, a, actually I think it was an interview, a great expression of this. And I can't remember if Ash includes it in the book y'all are reading or if it's just in the longer commentary version. But here's what Lewis said. Most people would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, these are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. Job's experience, his real experience in the past, gave him a longing, we would say a a correct, a right longing by faith for the world as it ought to be. And then this tragedy in his life, this intrusion, completely shatters that expectation and Reminds, it's not a very charitable word, but reminds him that we're not there yet. That this world as it is can never satisfy. And so as Job looks back to a much better time, he's right about the way that time was. It's better than this. But part of what was wrapped up in that time is the... the. The distance from the fallenness of the world. When your family is prospering and you're wealthy. And you're doing good for others. Remember, he's not selfish. We'll get to that in a little bit. He is incredibly generous. It's why he has this reputation in the town. People come to him for wisdom. People come to him for charity. It'll say that he's even charitable and helping people that he doesn't even know personally. But he hears about their story and he finds a way to help them. He's living rightly. He's a good man. And he has received for that goodness great things, riches, and health, and family, and warmth, and and. You could, living a life like that, come to the false conclusion that that is obtainable in this world, that an unbroken chain between doing good and getting great is what this world has to offer. We can even screw up the Christian religion in this world. It's not just go off to worldliness and screw up your worldview. It's you can screw up a relationship with God if you think the way Job's friends think. Do good, get great. And so part of Job's longing, the part that's right, is that what I used to have is better than I have now. That's pretty clear. (laughs) But the part that's wrong is part of the reason why he missed it so much is that when he was experiencing it, it was wrapped up in the lie of this world that you can have what's only available way out there in eternity here right now. And when God intervenes in history, in our personal history, to break us of that notion, to disabuse us, to, to you know, the, the the uncareful sort of casual way we say it is that God doesn't want us to get too comfortable here. But when we, even when we use that phrase or when we think of it that way, I'm afraid we're, we're importing too much worldliness to that, too much. I'm content with my money and my stuff. No, Job was using those things to honor God. He's using those things to bless God. It's simply not obtainable here. Perfect safety, perfect satisfaction, a perfect equivalency for do good and get great cannot happen in this world. And that truth comes crashing into Job's life and he longs for things the way they were. And that's what chapter 9 is. It is not just, as Ash says, a description about his past. It expresses a deep longing. That sense of nostalgia isn't just for the way it was. It was for what that allowed you to hope about the future. It was for the forward-looking things that you thought would be that now God has stripped away from you. And Job longs for that. And so even as he goes through this chapter... You'll notice that the things that he misses, the things that he's uh, commending, the things that he's longing for, these are not bad things. They're not selfish things. They're very good things. He's going to talk about his relation to uh, to God first. He's going to start there, what he misses about his closeness with God. And then he's going to talk about what that relationship allowed him to be in society, the way it allowed him to relate to his fellow man with generosity and charity and love. And he misses those things, and those are good. And so his mind lingers. And I, and I think it's really important that we not, like everything that in the Christian life that we must hold in tension, yes, we need to remember that there is a kind of longing for the past that is unhealthy, even sinful. We long for simpler times. When you had to go milk the cow yourself, and most sicknesses meant you were going to die. And we we, we long for, which part of that was simpler? Well, we didn't have technology. Uh, yeah, like the printing press. <laughs> uh, there is no simpler times. There are no better times. There's past times. There's now, within the whole of history. Certainly, individually, we have better and worse times. Uh, that, that nostalgia can be wrong of longing for days that are gone by. But if we do it the way Job is doing it here, it's not merely nostalgia for the way things were, but it's that sense of closeness with God. It's that hope and brightness for the future. Talking about that can be very therapeutic. <laughs> that, that reflection is an important part of our healing and our processing. So let's talk about what Job misses. Uh, Renee, will you read chapter 29, 1 through 6?
1: Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter and
0: the rock poured out for me streams of oil. God's care for him is something that he misses and he expresses that in several different profound ways this idea that God is watching over him and that that felt like a good thing at the time I think some of us there's a um, there's a uh, probably blasphemous line in a, in a musical that says you know we're God's people." Maybe God could watch over somebody else for a while, since God's people seem to suffer so much. Uh, Maybe God can exercise his care over somebody else for a little while and give me a break. God's watchfulness, and he uses the analogy or the illustration here of the, the light and the lamp, this idea of how reassuring it is in utter darkness to have one little light to follow kid who's scared of the dark sleeping with a nightlight can change the whole ball game little tiny light when I am stumbling through the house in the dark after all the lights are turned on or if I turned off or if I get up in the middle of the night if I can find one little light I can orient myself to the whole room oh that's the VCR nobody has VCR anymore (laughs) that's that's the blu-ray player light right (laughs) I have no nostalgia for that I uh, got many a non rewind charge in my life. Uh, that that little light of the Blu-ray player, I can reorient myself to the whole room. Um, night lights help too. <laughs> yeah the the when you're when you're those of you who've camped and hiked, there's a massive difference between a cloudy night and a night where the stars are out, isn't there? I mean, it's it's amazing how much clarity that much light can bring. And that's one of the things that Job remembers of God's presence with him is the comfort of that light being present. He also remembers verse four. What's the word he uses there that might catch you by surprise a little bit between God and man? Friendship. friendship. He misses God's friendship. There is, Derek Thomas is great on this in his commentary. There's a real intimacy that exists between God and his people. That as much as we talk about the creator-creature distinction, and it is important that we remember this intimacy is not because we're on a level playing field with God or because we deserve God's respect. No, this intimacy is because God has condescended, condescended to enter into relationship with us. Remember when I preached through John several months ago, we talked about the transition that happens with Jesus and his disciples, where they go from being strangers. And then it's this remarkable moment in the gospel when he starts to refer to them as friends. And then what does he refer to them at the end? Brothers. Brothers. Brothers, not even just friends, but family. That's the intimacy of God with his people. Listen to this that Derek Thomas says, I had never thought about this. The Lord is intimate with his people. One way we know he takes them into his confidence and reveals secrets to them that are hidden from the rest of mankind. You have this encounter in Genesis 18 where God wonders to himself, well, what am I to keep Abraham in the dark? My my friend, Abraham, I must tell him what my plan is, what I'm going to do. That ought to blow our minds. That God would regard Abraham so highly that he would take him into his confidence, that he would reveal to us in Christ and in the word by the Holy Spirit, things that, that we had formerly been grasping around in the dark to try to find, not really trying to find them, we wanted to find our own answers, but we were absolutely blind, grasping for answers to the meaning of life and the reality of the universe, and what does God do to us? Opens our eyes, speaks his word, gives us the Holy Spirit for understanding, tells us things that simply cannot be discerned otherwise. What does scripture say? You can't see these with human eyes. You need the eyes of faith. You need ears to hear, not just ears. And and God is enough of our friend, the friend of his people, that he would do this. It is it's really remarkable. Enough, oh. Right, so are you
1: saying that Job lost that friendship because
0: of the tragedies in his life? No, I'm saying Job laments that it is gone from him. Job laments that he doesn't feel it. Feel it. Okay. All right, all right. And... and yeah, his I mean, God still feels he, it's, it's the tree... If the tree falls in the woods and nobody can hear it principle, right? Um, what is happening in Job's life, I don't think any reasonable person would say... The obvious takeaway from that is that God is your friend. We know it's to be true by faith, but Job's experience, you can't get there from here. Right? You've got to go other places, other promises of God. You've got to go to the nature and character of God. You cannot go to what happened to Job and conclude God is a friend of Job. That's what he misses because in Job's life before, Job could look here and here and here And here and say, see, I'm God's friend. God is with me. God cares for me. Likewise, that's a good transition. What he does next is he talks about provision. Verses five, six, he talks about the blessings of children. He talks about herds and crops and produce. And he tells us he had so much. I'm sure somebody's tried this. He's had so much cream and olive oil, he could have bathed in them. (laughs) Uh, I think that's very expensive spas nowadays where they do that. (laughs) So much was the abundance that he could treat it that wastefully. The abundant provision of God for him. Just another evidence in his life that God was with him, that God was his friend, that God favored him. The other one is God's own presence. What does verse 5 say? The was yet with me. Was yet with me. Again, that's an experience, too, right? To Pam's point, God is always with us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Scripture says these things are, are, are firmly established and true. Has your life been an experience that God always feels with you. That must be because you're a bad Christian, right? That's the problem. You people are the problem. (laughs) (laughs) The point is both true and irrelevant. (laughs) How many Psalms are there that say, where did you go? Where'd you go? You were just here. You were with me. I felt it. You were, and and now you're gone. You feel as far away from me as possible. I cry out in my bed and you say nothing. That is absolutely the experience of life in this world. And so it's not wrong for Job to reminisce about the time in his life where it felt otherwise. About the time in his life where through provision, where through Uh, the, The awareness of God's friendship, he knew, circumstantially, was the evidence that God is with him. And now it's all gone. You can go through a trial where your stuff gets taken away, and you yet feel that God is with you. You can go through great tragedy and still feel, by God's mercy, that God is with you. But you can also go through lots of them where you don't feel that at all. Where it feels like abandonment. That's what Job's going through. And as he longs for the past, part of what he longs for is that relationship with God, both its fruit and its feeling. And he misses that. And that's not wrong. Pam? So when you were saying that it's really
1: kind of a sin to um, have nostalgia for the past, you saying that in can't live in the present
0: like you're so up. discontent with the present that's a great way to think about it the what what makes the difference between a reflection on the past that can be therapeutic and helpful and a unhealthy sinful longing for the past and i'm going to put an asterisk on this but it's contentment with the present it doesn't mean you want the present to stay as it is. You receive the present as the will of God and you long for a future day that again, back to where I started this morning, is not obtainable in this world. The reason why we shouldn't long for the the sum total of the past, we can long for parts and pieces of it. That's what Job does. But the reason we can't long for the sum total of the past is because then we'd be content with that and we would never long for glory. We would say, that's good enough. If I could just get back to that, that's enough for me. That's all I ever need. It shouldn't have been enough for you then. It shouldn't be enough for you now. You should long for glory. Your heart should long for all of that. Well, yeah, but it's less brokenness. I would take less brokenness over more brokenness. It's a bad trade. Because you've traded away no brokenness. Don't make the trade. Don't say, I'll take things back as they were and stay there. You forfeit. You forfeit. Future glory.
1: Not the gift of suffering.
0: It is. And it's not, boy, gift is both true and makes me mad. I don't like it either, <laughs> like
1: it either but it's true.
0: Yeah, if, if your life were completely charmed, you would not long for glory. Or mm-hmm. long for God. I think that's what a lot of people were saying. Yeah. to say. Material circumstances. And they're like, what would I need God for? And we would fight with God and we would say, no, 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 no. I'm not asking for for perfection that rivals you. I just want better than this hellhole. (laughs) And yet God knows the danger that presents to our heart. And he loves us enough to run through our lives like a tornado, destroying and casting aside anything that could make us content with something less than him. Now, that's not the only reason he runs through our lives like a tornado. That is one factor of what can be several. Many of those factors may not have anything to do with us. They may have things to do with other people in the world that he's redeeming. But it is certainly the case that there is danger when we long for the past That we would let our hearts be satisfied with how things were. Not in a contentment kind of way, but in a, I choose this over God.
1: I think the Psalms at least give us um, that we can call out to God, not be happy about them, right? Mm hmm.
0: And Job's such a good example, because remember, when Job had it all, Job was still calling out to God in gratitude, in confession of sin. It's, it's not like Job is a story of a guy who was taking all of these blessings for granted, and so God had to take him away to teach him a lesson. No, the story of Job is 1% about what change needs to happen in Job's heart, and 99% about God's defense of his own glory against Satan in the, in the realm we can't even see. It could be that ratio with us. But there is something there that God is doing for us and in us. Because even in Job's case, who we're told from start to finish is a good man. We're now going to start to see some redirection on Job's thinking that has to take place. And it starts from this. What else did he miss? He missed the result of living under God's favor, not just the material blessings, but the kind of man that allowed him to be. Uh, Kathy, will you read seven through 17? 29. Yes.
1: When I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. When the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help them. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest, and I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters, and the dew all night with my branches. My glory fresh with me.
0: And my bow ever knew in my kingdom. Thank you. He was a man of honor is the best phrase for it. Which is a rare thing in the ancient world. Because so many things about our present reality we think are new. And they're kind of the way the world's always been. And one example of that here is Job is rich. He is filthy, stinking rich. And in the ancient world, when you were rich, that rich, nobody liked you. Nobody liked you. And we think that's a new thing. <laughs> no. Nope. Nobody liked you. Uh, you heard it in one of his friend's accusations when he's trying to think of the sins that might have brought this upon him. He says, well, you know, you are really rich and there, nobody's real clear on how you got all that money. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Everybody's clear on how he got this money. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of questions there. And Eliphaz makes that accusation because normally rich people were not honored. Normally rich people didn't act honorably, and so they did not deserve to be honored. But Job is the exception to the rule. Job is held in high esteem, and Job acts honorably to deserve that esteem. It says not just that he's one of the the city elders, this is a pretty good-sized town, this uz. This is not a a tiny little village. This is a city with gates. This is a city with city elders. And when you have a city of this size, the gates is where all the action is. That's where people go and they'd lay out their blankets and put their goods for sale. That's where people come to get their news and to have conversation. That's where you'd go to get a dispute settled or to get some advice on a complicated thing. And and over time, men in the city who would prove themselves to be trustworthy would, would be elevated to the city elder role where people would come to them for advice. They'd come to them to... Settle disputes, the stuff that's outside of the judicial system. Back when you didn't sue your neighbor over a fence, you just went and got a third party's advice of whether or not you should move the fence. This is the kind of thing that's happening at the gates. And, and we read in this that Job is one of those elders, which means not just that he deserved to be respected, but that he actually was respected. And, and in fact, that he would be uh, the leader of those elders. We're going to find uh, in, later in this text. He had a reputation. And that reputation was for helping the poor and the widow. That reputation was for acting in righteousness and justice. Normally, when we think of somebody having a reputation, we don't think of it positively, do we? Because bad news travels much faster than good news. Your evil deeds uh, linger with you much longer than whatever good that you've done. And yet, Job has this reputation for wisdom, for justice, for rightness, for charity, for generosity. Three particular qualities jump out from this section. The first of those, starting in verse, uh, if we look at verses, let's go to 21 and 23. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them. They waited for me as for rain, and they opened their mouths as for the spring rain. Now that's pretty highfalutin language, but what is he talking about? Wisdom. He has wisdom. So much wisdom that... People didn't want to hear what the other wise men, city elders, had to say. It'd be one of those times where you would you would show up at your, your favorite place. This happens to me sometimes in, in uh, Greenville, where I'll go to my favorite restaurant and bar, and I go there because there are bartenders that are very particularly skilled at what they do. They're great. And sometimes I walk in and I'll peek around the corner and I'll see that neither of them are working that night. <laughs> and this feeling of, Oh, I got the B team. Uh, I think that's how you all feel with our pastoral situation currently is walking in, hoping that uh, the new guy will be here. There, there's a disappointment that comes with getting the second best. And when people looked for wisdom, they looked for Job. They wanted to see Job at the gate ready to help them answer questions because our questions are meaningful. Our our disputes, our difficult situations, the decisions that we have to make, these things are hard. (laughs) You hear, even as we talk about so many things that have to live in tension, where you don't want to fall too far off one side and you don't want to fall off the other side, you want to find this, this happy path that honors things on the right and the left, that's not simple. And... The idea that people would go, and from Job, they would get such a good answer, they wouldn't even argue with it. You see, it says when he spoke, they did not speak again. They were completely satisfied with his answer. It's exactly what they're looking for. And not like he shut them up. No, no, it, it, it describes it as people waiting for rain, opening their mouths. Like the, his wisdom is great. It's life-giving to them. It solves so many of their problems. It, it is helpful to them. You know that feeling when you've been all wound up about something, what to do, and you go talk to a close friend, somebody with godly wisdom, and they give an answer, and it's frustrating because from them it seems to come so simple and so obviously because it's our situation and not theirs. But the moment you hear it, you can't even be mad at them because you're so grateful. That's it. That's the answer I've been looking for. That's what I should do. It's so satisfying to have that kind of wisdom. And that's what he provided people. The other is this. um, And this is a tough one to sort of describe. It's in verse 24. I smiled on them when they had no confidence. And the light of my face they did not cast down. All right. Pop quiz. Put on your Hebrew hats for a minute. Because we're all so great at Hebrew. Mm There are some phrases in here you should really recognize. In this verse, 24, there are a couple of phrases that should be really familiar to you. And I want you to think about why they're familiar. Where do they come from? I smiled on them when they had no confidence. The light of my face they did not cast down. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's the Aaronic benediction. It's Numbers chapter 6. Job had that effect on people who came to him. I don't know a ton of people like that. I'm not often, except by God's grace, that kind of person. (laughs) That when people come to me, they walk away lifted up, a little more lightness in their step, a little higher holding their head, a little more joy in their gait. That's the effect Job had on the people, and he misses that. We're gonna to get to the way things are probably next week at this point. But Job can remember a time, and you can't think it's wrong to remember this time uh, happily. He can remember a time when instead of the people coming to him with mock and scorn and ridicule, the people came to him for wisdom and they walked away glad. They walked away feeling as though the face and blessing of God had shone upon them. That seems like something worth reflecting on. Is this like the Ash refers to as sort of the foreshadowing of Jesus? Because I mean it's so much of what Job is, right? Yep. yes um you'll actually see all three i'll get to the third one in a second which is leadership but the wisdom that that blessing that lifts people up rather than weighs them down and then leadership showing people where they ought to go and going out in front of them and doing it these attributes that make job so honorable are reflections of Christ and what Christ would be he is the he is the perfect example of those and therefore well, let me, let me mention leadership just since we're there. It says, um, it calls him the chief of the city. That's what I meant. Not just an elder, but he's the chief of those elders. He's the leader. It talks in verse 25. I chose their way and sat as chief, and I live like a king among his troops, like one who comforts the mourners, the right kind of leader, the kind that is there with you, sitting with his troops, not just talking about his troops and the kind that lifts them up, and is strength and encouragement. All those great movie scenes that we love, right before the troops go into the impossible battle, what does every one of those movies have? It has the leader riding back in front of them on his horse, or standing up on a table with a sword, giving the speech that provides strength and encouragement to his people. There's great examples of this in history. There's great examples of this in literature. And it's for a reason. That's what leaders do. Leaders interpret reality for their people and and direct their people to look up rather than down. That's what leadership is. Everything else is a distraction. (laughs) Helping people to rightly see and interpret reality so they know what to do next and so that they have the strength and the desire to do it. That's leadership. And this is what Job has been for the people. This is what Christ is the perfect example of. And therefore, I don't think any of us can get off the hook on these three things. I I, I think, I don't think I'm allowed to say It's not my personality type to lift people up rather than to weigh them down. I mean, I'm allowed to say it because it's true. I'm not allowed to be content with remaining that way. I think as we seek lives as honorable people, that's what Job's longing for. This closeness with God gave him the freedom to live a life of honor. I don't see how we get out of this or around this. I think we all, in different ways, in our stations, wherever God has placed us, I think we all have to seek wisdom, obtain wisdom, so that we can be a source of wisdom for others. We think of wisdom as uh, as like a military rank that I, Paul, have more wisdom than some of you because I went to school and I've been a pastor. And so I, a colonel in God's wisdom army, only go to generals for wisdom. And you can come to me because you're lieutenants. And that's not how any of this works. You ought to have wisdom for me. And many of you do. You ought to have wisdom for one another. There's no hierarchy of we all learn the same amount of wisdom in the same pace. You learn the same things first and you get there. So if I know these things that you don't yet know, I also know everything you already know and will apply them rightly in every situation. It's not true. You have an obligation to seek wisdom, to obtain wisdom, so that anyone who comes into your path seeking wisdom, directly or indirectly, because let's face it, most people are not seeking wisdom directly. (laughs) Most people's indirect seeking of wisdom is complaining, lamenting the way things are. And so for you to possess wisdom in such a way that you can share that wisdom with them, I think that's an obligation of living an honorable life. I think it's, I, I think it's the, the path that we're looking for. And then this, ah, for lack of a better term, m- moral rectitude. <laughs> yeah, there's a helpful word. <laughs> what does that mean? Your face... Your approach, your demeanor, the effect of being with you, lifting people up rather than tearing them down. For some of you, that comes easier. Making people feel good comes easier than wisdom, telling them the truth in love. Believing that the details matter, the nuances matter. For many of us, it's just the opposite. If you want a seven-point explanation for why this is the right thing to do instead of that, I'm your guy. But many times, if you want to come away from that explanation, thankful that that's what you ought to do, and eager to do it, I'm not your guy. I don't make you feel like this is what you get to do. I make you feel like this is what you have to do. Well, that's not right either. And and what what Job had captured in godliness, what Jesus accomplishes perfectly, and therefore what we ought to be striving toward and never making excuses, never letting ourselves off the hook that this is just the way I'm going to be, is that combination, that wisdom and that Shining of God's face upon them. The Pharisees get a lot of junk in the New Testament, and they should. And it's not because the Pharisees were wrong about God's demands. They were right far more often than they were wrong. They they didn't have the blessing part, the get-to part. And that's why they could take a real commandment that should be life. The New Testament says the law of the Lord is life-giving. What? That's what it should be. And they could make it feel like somebody's piling up heavy loads on your back and crushing you under the weight of their demands. You also can make people feel good. (laughs) If you remove from them Anything other than their own selfish desires. Neither one of those are good. Neither one of those are leadership. Neither one of those are what Christ did. And I think we have this amazing picture in Job of what we're called to be. Wisdom and the light of his face. Um, Strength and encouragement for our people. Strength comes from truth. Strength comes from knowing you have a sure foundation. The reason why we can be strong is because we know something is going to work. And we know it's going to work when it is God's way. He may, his definition of what works, remember, is much more uh, long-term than what we, what we want. But we can be confident. We can have strength that it's going to work because it's God's way. That comes from wisdom. That strengthens people. And then encouragement is the heart. The, I want to. I believe this is good for me. I believe I can do this. I believe, I believe that this honors God and that this will be good for me. However difficult it may be. That's what leadership ought to be. Questions about that? And then we'll, we'll get to the very last section of this. So the military rank, view of wisdom. That's like the Buddhist model, right? Yes that we are on the same journey, that that there's only one way that wisdom unfolds. You know, you got to get level one wisdom and then level two wisdom and then level three and then level four. And here are the specific things that are in each of those levels and that once you obtain them, you achieve nirvana. And what I'm saying is there are some of you in this room Who feel like the least wise people in the room. Who've learned some of these things. And there are people like me. Who learned a lot of things. Who need to learn from you. And that wisdom. You need to be prepared. To share it and to. Use it to lift one another up. Don't ever despise. The wisdom that God has given you or the station into which he's placed you to share that wisdom with others. Don't don't ever think that until you're a level five Christian wisdom, you should not be prepared to offer wisdom to others. It's the same reason why I could, although I'm not married, offer some sort of general. That's right. that's right, and that's a, helpful, um, that's a helpful, as we think about our pastor search, one of, the, one of the things that congregations can sometimes get caught up in is the idea that we don't want to call a young pastor, because what does he know? Really? You, you want to go down that path? All right? He's never been married. What would he have to say about marriage? Well, what if I flip that around on you? What if I say, because he's never been married, the only things he has to say about marriage are what scripture has to say about marriage and not his attempts to justify the failures in his own marriage based on his daily reality. I was thinking that so much of we forget no longer we married. The basic foundational truths. We start to justify as human nature the way we practice things in our family, and we start to tell other people, "Well, you know, there's a lot you can move because otherwise, I've totally condemned myself for the." And what the guy who's never been married is going to say is, I-, "I don't know, but here's what God says." yeah." Uh man <laughs> now that doesn't mean he has some exceptional type of wisdom but right? but it's the we, we cannot get this mentality of unless you've experienced exactly what i've experienced you have no wisdom to speak that's that is it's just it's not true it won't work and it's not true it, uh, it fails to recognize spiritual gifting. Mm. i mean that's part of this type of wisdom time is that we are all gifted in different ways some of us study a ton and have knowledge yeah to, be, to bring to bear on other things, and others have, you know, just God has gift us in different ways, and so we have wisdom in different areas. This this is why, just a rubber meets the road a little bit. This is why in the in the Reformed and Presbyterian traditions, um, we speak very specifically about spiritual giftedness, about the role of elder and pastor and what that means and what it doesn't mean. So for those of us that grew up or came out of more uh, Pentecostal charismatic environments, they'll use a title of apostle a lot. Apostle so-and-so. Why don't we use that? Well, (laughs) uh, I do not have, as the pastor of this church... I do not have access to any special dispensation of God's wisdom that you do not have access to. There's no word God can give me that you can't verify by looking in your scriptures and seeing what's there. I have been called to a unique role. I have a function other people don't have, but there's no authority inherent in that function. Then there's elders of the church where an authority is given, the keys to the kingdom, it's very clear, the authority that elders of a church have, but it's given in mass. It's given to a body of elders. It's not given to an individual. And I think as we look at the way church history is played out, there's a lot of wisdom in that, no surprise, (laughs) that God knows you can invest a particular responsibility in an individual and that works well. But you should not invest a unique authority in an individual. Otherwise, human nature, I'm not going to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ at Covenant of Grace in Dunwoody, Georgia. What am I going to build? I'm going to build the kingdom of (laughs) Palmoma. Because you all need to recognize my authority. (laughs) (laughs) It's just something to be careful with. Again, it's not about getting hung up on words, but it's, it's something to be careful with that... There is no dispensation of God's wisdom. When God revealed himself, he did not reveal a bunch of things to you and to the public and some secret things to some very special people. No, no. He revealed all the secret things in his word. There's just a whole bunch of people who can't see him. And so by his spirit, he gives you the ability to see them. So this is, and let me wrap this up in our our last minute here. What what Job is longing for is what was, but also what might have been. He's reflecting on the life that would have moved forward from that point and what that would have looked like, rather than a life that moves forward from the tragedy that he experienced. And so what it calls into question, and this is where the line starts to get fuzzy for Job and where he'll start to err a little bit, It's not that God called into question Job's appreciation for what he had before. It does call Job's deepest ambitions into question. What is the life with which Job would have been satisfied? What did Job think about what life ought to be? And the answer is an extension of what it was not an extension of what God might do, not an extension of how God might lead that life ultimately to glory, new heavens, and new earth. Job's ambition for the life that would be is the life that would start from where he was and continue on that same trajectory undisturbed. And, and that hurts. So I'm going to close with... Calvin has a great paragraph on this. This is in the spirit of Jesus saying... Uh, about the guy who tears down his barns to build bigger barns? He doesn't say there's anything wrong with what's in the barns. (laughs) He says, you fool. You are basing the hope of your life. Your ambition for what life ought to be is so forward-looking along your same trajectory. You have no allowance for what God might do in between. And what God's going to do is take your life tomorrow. And what will become of these barns now? So Calvin says this. If God sends us any prosperity, let us not be too sleepy, but let us consider this mortal life is subject to all the changes we can devise. And although the whole world seems to favor us, and that we have a hundred thousand shoulders to bear us up, yet must we nevertheless think that there is no settledness here below, but that all things are transitory, all things are changed in the turning of a hand, For there is nothing easier with a man than to make himself believe that he shall always continue just as he is. That's the disruptive force God brings into Job's life. 1% Job, 99% defending God's glory in the heavenlies, but we're now going to start to move into some of the, what God's going to do in that 1% of Job and it's not nothing. It's not that Job is a completely innocent bystander who's the victim of God's dispute with Satan. No, there's a purpose in Job that God is going to work out through this. It's not what his friends thought. It's this, and that'll be the next couple of chapters.